Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. This is Psalm 101, the Psalm of David. The theme is a prayer for help to walk a blameless path, to live with integrity. Both our efforts and God's help are necessary. Verse 1. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord and free the city of the Lord from their grip. So when I study this psalm for a second, I see three key elements. First, he talks about his relationship with God. Then he talks about his relationship with behavior. And lastly, his relationship with people. Verse 1 and the first half of verse 2 are his relationship with God, saying, I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? So he's saying, I'm praising you even though I need your help, and right now I'm still waiting on it. Which is so relatable to me because I feel like there have been times where I was praising God and doing my best and needing his help and felt like I was waiting for it. The second half of verse two says, I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. And basically the rest of the Psalm is what does a life of integrity look like for David? Verse three, four, and five are about his relationship with behavior or behaviors. It says, I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. So nothing vile and vulgar, people who are crooked, perverse ideas and anything that he deems evil. People who slander their neighbors, and I will not endure conceit and pride. Now, is that his conceit and pride, or is that conceit and pride from others? Maybe both. I don't know. Then verse 6, 7, and 8 is his relationship with other people, who he does and does not want to be uh, the individuals that he invests his time in. Right? I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. So both his companions and his servants, he wants to be people of integrity. Verse 7, I will not allow 
deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. So deceivers, liars, wicked. That's who he doesn't want around him. Those who are faithful and above reproach are those that he does want around him. Because that was only an eight-verse psalm, I will read another one. This is Psalm 103, also Psalm of David. The theme is God's great love for us. What God does for us tells us what he is really like. Verse 1. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He's removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we are only dust. Our days on earth are like grass, like wildflowers. We bloom and die. The wind blows and we're gone, as though we'd never been here. But the love of the Lord remains forever with those who fear him. His salvation extends to the children's children of those who are faithful to his covenant for those who obey his commandments. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. From there he rules over everything. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. Praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom. Let all that I am praise the Lord. So I had to grab a pen for this one and go back through and under, underline everywhere it says praise the Lord. It says it six times. Two at the beginning. Let all, thy, all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. And then it goes on to talk about all of the good things that God has done for David that David recognizes. It's a miniature count your blessings kind of a psalm, which is the, the meat of it. And then jump down to the end, it says, praise the Lord four times in a row. The first two are about his angels. Praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. Verse 21, yes, praise the Lord, you armies of angels who serve him and do his will. And then the last verse is that everything and himself, praise the Lord, verse 22, praise the Lord, everything he has created, everything in all his kingdom, let all that I am praise the Lord. 
Now jumping back to the middle, verse 13, it says, The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And the first thing that always comes to mind for me when I read a scripture that refers to God as a father is the sad and unfortunate reality that for so many people today that is difficult for them because they didn't have an example of a loving father in their life. They either didn't have any father figure, very little of one, or what they did have was a sad excuse for a father, right? And I really like what the author of one of the footnotes in my Bible had to say about this. Verse 13, God is like a father, tender and compassionate, but not every child has a tender and compassionate father. Too often, the cycles of abuse and dysfunction rob children of loving fathers. If that is your situation, God offers himself to you to be the father you never had or perhaps felt you never needed. Of course, you can't go fishing with God or be held physically by him, but you can receive his love in your heart by means of his Holy Spirit. God can tenderly heal your deep loss. And I just like that. I mean, they say you can't go fishing with God. Of course you can go fishing with God, but uh, is he, is he going to fill your boat with fish like he did in the Bible? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to make any promises there, right? But I just really like that. He might not be the, the, the flesh and blood version of a father that you needed and didn't have, but what he can do is give you love far superior to any, to the ability of any earthly father. He can love you way more than any idyllic human father ever could. And he can heal you from anything you need to be healed from. Proverbs chapter 19, we're right in the middle, picking up at verse 16. Keep the commandments and keep your life. Despising them leads to death. And last time we just read the Ten Commandments. If you want a refresher, it was Exodus chapter 20. Verse 17, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord and he will repay you. Verse 18, discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. Interesting. If you withhold discipline, then you are the one ruining your child's life. Verse 19, hot-tempered people must pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. Oh, man, isn't that the truth? Some hot-tempered person lets their anger control what comes out of their mouth. And if they get away with it, they think they can just talk to people like that. It says, if you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. Man, you ain't kidding. Ain't nobody got time for that. Verse 20. 
Get all the advice and instruction you can so you will be wise the rest of your life. Yes. Verse 21, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Someone told me once in my life, they, they thought of me as the girl with a plan. Right? They're like, you've always got plans for something. And I just laughed and I said, yeah. Doesn't always happen, though. <laughs> most, most of my plans, God, um, God had some ace card up his sleeve and uh, overrode my plans. And man, am I glad he did. Because what he gave me in exchange was way better. Verse 22, loyalty makes a person attractive. It is better to be poor than dishonest. Interesting. Loyalty makes a person attractive. You know, I hear, uh, you hear confidence is attractive. But Solomon would say loyalty is attractive. And, right behind it, it's better to be poor than dishonest. It's better to be a poor, honest person than a rich liar. I think I might agree with that, but I'd kind of like to try it out firsthand. <laughs> oh, verse 23. Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. I can't remember if I've said this before while recording this and reading scripture, but I had to wrestle with the concept of fearing the Lord. And what helped me was thinking about fearing the Lord as in fearing the Son. Right? You can fear the Son and love the Son, right? You can love to be out in it and get your vitamin D and the warmth and the light and the sunshine. But you can respect its power and know that if you stay out in it too long... In the heat, you can get dehydrated or have heat exhaustion or sunburn, and you're not going to stare at it because you're going to go blind, right? You can love the sun and have a healthy respect for its power. And you can fear its effects. And that is now how I see or what I think of when I read any verse that talks about fearing the Lord. I can love God and fear God in the sense that I have a very healthy respect for his power. Verse 24. Lazy people take food in their hand but don't even lift it to their mouth. <laughs> oh man. Lazy people take food in their hand, but don't even lift it to their mouth. That 
is a really interesting verse there. It's kind of like saying, I'll take your hand out, but I'm not going to do the work of, of making it work for me. Right? I need you to give me the hand out. I need you to give me the food and I need you to chew it for me. Right? It's like, I'm going to take your help and I expect you to do stuff for me that I should be doing myself. That's how I interpret that. That could be an inaccurate way of interpreting that, but there's my take. Verse 25, if you punish a mocker, the simple-minded will learn a lesson. If you correct the wise, they will be all the wiser. Verse 26, children who mistreat their father or chase away their mother are an embarrassment and a public disgrace. If you heard a big boom in the background, that might have been a firework because I'm recording this on Memorial Day. It might have been a gunshot. Who knows? Verse 27. If you stop listening to instruction, my child, you will turn your back on knowledge. 28. A corrupt witness makes a mockery of justice. The mouth of the wicked gulps down evil. Man, and God hates injustice. Hates it. Punishment is made for mockers and the backs of fools are made to be beaten. Jeez. Talk about a battery charge. Punishment is made for mockers and the backs of fools are made to be beaten. I don't really know what to make of that, except I'm sure we've all probably wanted to beat a fool a time or two in our lifetime. <laughs> Hopefully, didn't act on it. In Galatians, we're picking up reading chapter 4, but we'll start right at the end of chapter 3. Refresher, uh, this is written by Paul to the Christians in Galatia. Chapter 1 is him giving his credentials and why they should listen to what he has to say. Chapter 2, he talks about confronting Peter, who was people-pleasing the Judaizers at the expense of the Galatians, and Paul called him out on that. And chapter 3 was about the law, and we went back and read uh, the Ten Commandments and God's promises to Abraham. And it talks about how the law was to teach people about God. A uh, quick refresh, chapter 3, verse 19 says, Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, which is Christ. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. So Moses was the mediator between God and the people. Now, mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who was one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. 
And he goes on to say, there's no obedience to the law that can save us. We are set free because of believing in Jesus Christ. And that's where we left off in chapter 3, verse 22. Now we're picking up in verse 23, going straight into chapter 4. The subtitle here is God's Children Through Faith. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you were all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who had been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. For you will you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Here we start chapter four. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that we could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Before you, this goes on to a new subtitle called uh, Paul's Concern for the Galatians. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? Are you trying to earn favor with God by obeying certain days or months or seasons or years? I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me, and though as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself, there is that, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. 
but let them do it for all do it all the time not just when i'm with you oh my dear children i feel as if i'm going through labor pains for you again and they will continue until christ is fully developed in your lives i wish i were with you right now so i could change my tone but at this distance i don't know how else to help you next subtitle section is abraham's two children here tell me you who want to live under the law do you know what the law actually says the scriptures say that abraham had two sons one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife the son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of god's promise but the son of the freeborn wife was born as god's own fulfillment of his promise these two women serve as an illustration of god's two covenants the first woman hagar represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in, Ar in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you, and Isaac was born of Sarah. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Now I'm going to read a footnote here, verse... 28 of chapter 3 said there's no longer Jew or Gentile slave or free male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus footnote commentator writes some Jewish males greeted each new day by praying Lord I thank you that I am not a Gentile a slave or a woman the role of women was enhanced by Christianity faith in Christ transcends these differences and makes all believers one in Christ. Make sure you do not impose distinctions that Christ has removed. Because all believers are his heirs, no one is more privileged than or superior to anyone else. Now, in our world, our secular world, there is obviously such a thing as discrimination and privilege and disenfranchised. Sad reality, but that's, the, that's a fact. But when a privileged person and an underprivileged person come together to worship God, there is no difference in his eyes. Right? God has removed all of that crud. So are the people worshiping putting it back in place? Right? Are the believers treating other believers with more privilege or 
discriminating against them because that's putting in place something, a sin, a wrong that Christ intentionally removed. And here's the other thing on that. If you recognize a power differential and don't acknowledge it, you unintentionally side with the person with more power and privilege. The next, sorry, the next footnote I'm going to read is from verse 15, chapter 4, verse 15. It says, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. He's saying, I was sick, you took me in, you treated me like royalty, and you were happy to do so. Where did it go? And this whole uh, chapter, he's referring to that they were Gentiles, meaning they didn't follow the law of the Jews. But then they became Christians and then met these Judaizers who said, in order to be real Christians, you have to follow the law first. And of course, that's Paul's entire rant in this book is, no, that's not true. You don't have to follow Jewish law. You just have to to follow Christ. Anyway, so this footnote says, have you lost your joy? Paul sensed that the Galatians had lost the joy of their salvation because of legalism. Legalism can take away joy because, and it lists four things here. One, it makes people feel guilty rather than loved. And I don't know if you are still receiving these or remember when there was a fad back in the day of sending around uh, Jesus guilt trip emails. I call them Jesus guilt trip emails. It's like blah 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 blah. Jesus 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 some sob story. If you don't send this to at least 20 people then some bad thing is gonna happen to you. I used to have a couple coworkers that would send me like all of these Jesus guilt trip emails and I would just delete them. I'm like, you know, Jesus doesn't operate on guilt trips. This is not Christ-like in any form or fashion and I want nothing to do with it. I wouldn't even read them. I'd see the whole, you must send this to 20 people or else blah, 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 delete. And you know what? Nothing happened. Why? Christ was not in the email. All right, verse number two. All right, number one was it makes people feel guilty rather than loved. Nope. Two, it produces self-hatred rather than humility. Man, man, that's well written. It produces self-hatred rather than humility. Yeah, people get so uh, down on themselves for not being perfect. You can be humble without completely putting yourself down like you're a mat. Three, it stresses performance over relationship. Man, that's the truth. Four, it points out how far short we fall rather than how far we've come. 
because of what Christ did for us. Man, I love, loved whoever wrote this book. Makes people feel guilty rather than loved. It produces self-hatred rather than humility. It stresses performance over relationship. It points out how far short we fall rather than how far we've come because of what Christ did. If you feel guilty and adequate, check your focus. Are you living by faith in Christ or by trying to live up to the demands and expectations of others? Okay, so my... Bible's pretty awesome. It's a Chronological Life Application Study Bible, New Living Translation by Tyndale. It's about two inches thick because it's got so much extra content in it. And every once in a while, some of this extra content is pretty stinking cool. I like charts and graphs. And there's this little table in here. Uh, it talks about three distortions of Christianity. Judaized Christianity, legalized Christianity, lawless Christianity, and then true Christianity. And it gives their, what their definition is, what their genuine concern is, the danger, and what's the application question here. So I'm done with the scripture portion. That's all you wanted. Turn me off now, but I think this table is pretty cool. So I will share this real quick. So the first group is the Judaized Christianity. Their definition of a Christian is, Christians are Jews who have recognized Jesus as their promised savior. Therefore, any Gentile desiring to become a Christian must first become a Jew. Their genuine concern, having a high regard for the scriptures and God's choice of Jews as his people, they did not want to see God's commands overlooked or broken. The danger adds human traditions and standards to God's law, also subtracts from the scriptures God's clear concern for all nations. The application question, do you appreciate God's choice of a unique people through whom he offered forgiveness and eternal life to all peoples? The next group is legalized Christianity. Their definition of a Christian is Christians are those who live by a long list of don'ts. God's favor is earned by good behavior. Their genuine concern recognize that real change brought about by God should lead to changes in behavior. The danger makes God's love something to earn rather than to accept freely. Reduces Christianity to a set of impossible rules and transforms the good news into bad news. The application question. As important as change in action is, can you see that God may be desiring different changes in you than in others? Lawless Christianity. Their definition is Christians live above the law. They need no guidelines. God's word is not as important as our personal sense of God's guidance. Their genuine concern. Recognize that forgiveness from God cannot be based on our ability to live up to his perfect standards. It must be received by faith as a gift made possible by Christ's death on the cross. The danger forgets that Christians are still human and fail consistently when trying to live only by what they quote-unquote feel God wants. 
application question. Do you recognize the ongoing need for God's expressed commands as you live out your gratitude for his great salvation? All right, so far, I, I found those those three pretty interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to see what they say true Christianity is. And I'm reading this in my mind thinking, are any, am I going to be able to tell there's a bias from any of the people who wrote this, right? Because the authors of this little table here, just humans like me, am I going to be picking up any biases of what they believe is right coming across and what they're trying to tell me in this table? So that's what I'm going in with. Let's see. True Christianity. Their definition of Christian. Christians are those who believe inwardly and outwardly that Jesus' death has allowed God to offer them forgiveness and eternal life as a gift. They've accepted that gift through faith and are seeking to live a life of obedient gratitude for what God has done for them. I like that. Their genuine concern. Christianity is both private and public. With heart belief and mouth confession, our relationship to God and the power he provides result in obedience. Having received forgiveness and eternal life, we were now daily challenged to live that life with his help. I like that. The one thing I noted was it says, with heart belief and mouth confession. Um, Christianity is both private and public with heart belief and mouth confession. I think other people probably would have made that list a bit longer. <laughs> That's just, <laughs> again, people's biases and, and opinions and interpretations of scripture coming up. But I, I like what it says. Um, Our relationship to God and the power he provides result in obedience. Having received forgiveness and eternal life, we are now daily challenged to live that life with his help as opposed to legalism that is saying we have to in order to earn this is saying we want to we are challenged to and we do it with his help not by ourselves all right the danger avoids the above dangers I don't see how that's a danger, but okay. Application question. How would those closest to you describe your Christianity? Do they think you live so that God will accept you? Or do they know that you live because God has accepted you in Christ? Interesting. Anyway, that's a nice little golden nugget in this Bible 